Welcome back to What Happens Next, the podcast that examines some of the biggest challenges facing our world and asks the experts what will happen if we don't change and what can we do to create a better future. I'm Dr. Susan Carland. Keep listening to find out what happens next. When I talk to other people working in the climate space in general, people find that action is the antidote to anxiety. And again, you can reduce climate anxiety by being part of a community which is working together. I always remember that the future is not set. It might look a bit dark right now, but it's not set. And it is set by the people who take action today. And therefore, we need to take action today. Everywhere we turn, there's bad news about Earth's future. We read it every day online, we hear about it in podcasts like this one, and we see it with our own eyes with every new climate-related natural disaster. It's enough to keep anyone up at night. And as we learned in last week's episode, it does. Climate anxiety is one of the many psychological impacts of climate change, and it's only getting worse as we're frustrated daily by inaction from industry and government. But today, we're shifting focus to empowerment and action. I'm joined by experts and activists tackling climate anxiety head-on, offering hope, resilience and a roadmap for a more sustainable future. Keep listening to find out what happens next. My name's Dr Rebecca Huntley. I'm a social researcher and writer. Uh, I'm particularly passionate and interested in uh, climate change and nature and the environment in the, in the research that I do. Rebecca Huntley, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. One of the things that you've researched recently are public attitudes toward climate change. What have you noticed are some of the more common emotions that people have about the issue? The main um, emotion that the majority of us have is a level of doubt and uncertainty. And that's really the consequence of nearly three decades of deliberately sowing the seeds of doubt about the causes of climate change and also about the capacity for us to address climate change by the fossil fuel industries, by um, various political and media interests who want that doubt to continue. Fantastic book that was actually talked, actually was based on the tactics of the big tobacco uh, called Merchants of Doubt, which was just the tactic was just keep saying, well, we don't know and it could be and you know what I mean, just basically injecting uncertainty and doubt into the public discussion to fend off what what was the evidence base. And so the climate, um, uh, you know, the fossil fuel industries have done the same. And so it's not a surprise that when you say to people "What's what's the, the real emotional response you have to climate change, it's uncertainty. Um, and it's not always just uncertainty about what is climate change happening, how much is being caused by human beings. There's a level of uncertainty we all feel about how worried should we be? How much do I really know about this? There is a kind of anxiety. So anxiety, uncertainty, doubt, insecurity, all of those kinds of things. While we remain in that space, it's very difficult for people to act definitively out of a position of doubt, uncertainty. One of the other real consequences from that that 
primary emotional response to climate change is that we don't want to talk about it. If you feel a sense of doubt and uncertainty about something, it's very hard to then pipe up and say something about it because you most people just don't want to be wrong, right? They don't want to say, well, I think climate change is happening and maybe the fires are caused by climate change. Nobody wants to be shut down because a lot of people feel like I'm not an expert in this. So while we remain in that uncertain state, it's, it's, it is very difficult to act. And I imagine it also then means that the people that feel that they can be confident, even if they're wrong, are the dominant voices. Oh, yeah, exactly. That reiterates, reiterates this problem. At a societal level, managing our collective climate anxiety would be much easier if more people felt confident enough to have informed conversations about it. I've been involved in a project for a number of years now called Climate Compass, which which divides the community according to various different segments on climate. Um, about 9% of the community are what we would say dismissive on climate and, and, and people who are active climate deniers are only about 3 or 4% of that group. Of all the people across the spectrum, all of these groups of people on climate, the only ones that say uh, have any kind of um, doubt about their ability to talk about climate are the climate deniers. <laughs> like, and in fact, the more anxious you are about climate, the more concerned, the more alarmed, the more engaged, your biggest barrier to doing anything about climate, particularly talking about it, is I don't think I'm a good enough speaker or writer. So the more you care about an issue, the more you want to do it justice and the higher threshold you give yourself in terms of being a good advocate, having all the facts on, on, you know, having all the facts. And when I do the work that I do, a lot of really um, people who are really engaged and worry about climate say to me, what books can I read? Like, should I go and do a degree? Like, how, what do I need to know? And I'm like, you do not need to be an expert on climate change to talk about. It's almost like this. It's the reverse Dunning-Kruger effect. Exactly. You know, this, this idea where people, the less they know, the more they think they do. No, I think that's exactly, it's exactly right. Exactly right. And it kind of makes sense too because people who are alarmed about climate change, the, one, of the big, one of the characteristics about all of them is that they believe the science, right? So they have a very kind of a greater trust in experts, a greater ability for systems thinking, they tend to be more educated, not because they're kind of smarter, but because they understand what it is to actually go and do a university degree and how difficult it is to kind of fabricate evidence out of the back of that. So you have a group of people who are alarmed about climate change and why? one of the reasons why they are alarmed is because they believe that tens of thousands of people with PhDs, <laughs> that they're not making this up. And of course, so that means that they have a respect for evidence, respect for expertise. So their threshold for that is much higher. Their kind of standards are higher and they feel like if I can't meet those standards, I'm not going to do the issue justice because I don't have all the facts. Not something that climate deniers care about at all. <laughs> so not, not, does not keep them up awake, does not keep them up at night at all. Here's Dr. Rhonda Garrard from Monash University's Centre for Health Research and Implementation. There's a low level of science literacy um, in our community. Um, and I'd actually even put myself in that, even though I'm a PhD in science. But uh, climate science, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging to understand. 
And so there is, um, there's a tremendous need for science brokers, for communicators like yourself, to bridge that gap between the scientists and, and being able to um, deliver a message to people that is um, both accurate and hopeful. Environmental sustainability and climate change education expert Professor Alan Reid also believes there's a literacy issue to tackle, and it goes beyond science. Climate change isn't just a science issue or a technology issue. It's about how do we want to live together well? Mm. And once we start asking those questions, then climate will naturally come up. We don't have to focus on the crisis. We can focus on what kind of society do we want to live in? If we think about the voice, if we think about the kind of future of Australia, where should it be by, say, 2200, that kind of thing. Mapping out a seventh generation type perspective is another way of beginning to say, well, let's recognize there are different ways of thinking about how the future might unfold. Who do we honor? Who do we want to engage with? How do we want to take this further? Mm -hmm. And that, again, is part of the educational process. We have dialogue, disagreement. We come to resolutions on things. We sometimes know we've got to learn a bit more. It's not one side or another. The challenge for a lot of the um, work around climate anxiety is how do you stop it becoming despair? Mm. And education is one of many routes that you can hopefully encourage people not to despair about things. But there's also an equipping which comes from schooling and from education to be scientifically literate, to be climate literate, to be emotionally literate. We could even talk about emotional intelligence as well as scientific intelligence, different forms of intelligence which are important. To, to raise as part of the package of education and what schools, um, different sectors should be focusing on. And I think there, that's where, in terms of avoiding a calamitous future, the kind of dystopian futures which we often see in TV series, movies, climate fiction, which is kind of um, suggesting it's the end of the world, avoiding those apocalyptic scenarios is really important for also saying, actually, we can respond. We've had crises before. There are things which bring about change in society. So we know what we need to do at a high level, but what about you and I? How do we stop tossing and turning at 3am trying to handle the world's biggest existential threat on our own before breakfast? One tricky thing about managing climate anxiety, I think of a friend I have who has terrible climate anxiety. She can't read any newspaper articles about what's happening with the climate because she gets genuine anxiety. And so she avoids all, all, she says, I just, I have to switch it off because I actually can't cope with it. Every so often it's nice to have a donut, but if you have donuts all of the time, it will make you very ill. I'm not saying that climate information, knowing what's going on is like eating donuts. But it's one of those things where sometimes we need to know when to say, okay, I can put my screen down. I don't need to hear this any longer. I can go and do something else. Climate Council CEO Amanda McKenzie says the next step is to stay in the moment. You know, for little human brains, it's actually a real a lot compared to where we came evolutionarily to, to take on these global challenges. So we need to be as present as possible. We do a lot of thinking about the future. What if this happens? What if that happens? These varying disasters. And it's not to ignore them, but just to say, let's focus on the present when I have time to enjoy myself. Like I find this with my kids. Sometimes I'll be at the park and it'll be a beautiful environment. The kids are on the swing and I'll start thinking, will they get to have this with their kids? And kind of ruining the moment for myself. 
And I try to be disciplined now in saying to myself, no, I'm enjoying this moment Mm. because this is the moment that's here right now. We can also make conscious choices about our attitudes towards the problem. Here's Rebecca again. Look, when I was when I was writing the book, um, how to talk about climate change, uh, you know, was looking at all the kind of social science and the sentiment work, and but I was also kind of talking to people who'd been involved in climate action for a lot longer than I had at the time. So it was I wrote the book almost at the beginning of my kind of. Um, engagement as an environmental activist. Um, and they all said a version of um, optimism is a choice that you make. Um, and some would say in a sense it's almost a kind of illogical choice, <laughs> a logical choice when you kind of, if you really kind of, um, you know, um, stack up all the evidence. But, but I, that really resonated for me and for two reasons. I don't feel as somebody who has been, you know, extraordinarily privileged and lucky in the kind of life's lottery and um, to kind of say, well, I'm just going to give up on this thing <laughs> that is, you know, probably going to affect me but more, much more likely going to affect people in other countries and other parts of Australia that, that are far less well-resourced than me. I don't feel like that's a moral decision that I could make. Like, oh, I haven't really tried hard, but I'm going to give up. (laughs) Um, And secondly, I have children and I don't really feel, and that's a kind of version of that, I don't really feel like I can give up on something that is going to be such a dominant um, shaper of the world in which they grow up in. Um, But the other thing I would say is this, uh, and this is not my metaphor, uh, there's there's lots of kind of you know uh, recurring metaphors in the world of climate and and I don't know whether it's because we're all nerds but you know the Hobbit and, <laughs> and Tolkien's one of those. Um, Are you about to tell me that the real struggle of climate change was the friendship we made along? No. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not true. I think I mean it's like you do make lots of friends in the climate movement and that's one way that you stay optimistic is because you don't want to let other people. Right, because pessimism is contagious. Yeah. Um, there is this kind of sense of that by embarking on something that feels hopeless, the very the very nature of embarking on it can help you kind of you know measure kind of help you kind of meddle with the odds. Right. If you didn't actually try, then you haven't actually set in train a whole range of processes that somehow can kind of magically come together that might actually chip the odds in our favour. Amanda also says it's important to remember that we're trying to turn a planet-sized ship around. That's going to take some time. So it's more helpful to think about what we can control. What I advise people to think about when they're getting into working on climate is to manage their own expectations Although we know the scale of the problem and we need to be agitating for the similar scales of solutions, we also need to understand that social change does inevitably take some time. Mm. And managing that expectation is important to ensuring that you don't get burnt out in approaching an issue like this. But also thinking about, well, what are the steps that I'm going to take? As you said, if you're just doing some actions around your house, that can be very disempowering. Mm. Um, because you look down the street and no one else has done it and you're thinking, well, actually the politicians and businesses have much bigger levers. So I advise people to think about their voice, 
their treasure and their time. Hmm. So your voice is how you are um, sharing your thoughts with those around you, how you vote, calling your politician, activating those in your community. Your treasure is where your money is going. So can you donate to organisations that are doing good work on this, join with others? Can you think about where your um, where your banking, where your superannuation is going, which is either ethical or it's not mm. ethical? And then using your time, can you, um, depending on the stage you are in your life, do you have a capacity to volunteer? So that's for a general audience. But if you have power and influence, you should be using every lever that you have to make a difference. And I advise people to think about what is their circle of influence because we often don't think about ourselves as being someone that has agency. I remember even presenting to a superannuation fund board and where does a little superannuation fund, what can we do? <laughs> was one of the responses. I thought, you know, often everyone has a bit of that sense of I'm just a small actor, what can I do? Well, what is my sphere of influence? Is it my street? Is it the school community? Is it my workplace? Is it donating to an organisation to empower a bigger group of people to work together? And finally, when we're ready, we can take a breath and take action. Here's Kelly O'Shaughnessy, CEO of the Australian Conservation Foundation. It's such a tricky thing, isn't it? Because we talk about climate anxiety and how can we manage climate anxiety when if we believe that what the science is telling us is true, which I think most people do, the vast majority of scientists do agree on this. This isn't, you know, a, a, a potential or a possible outcome. It seems pretty certain. Climate anxiety is actually an entirely reasonable feeling. Like if you genuinely believe this is going to happen, which is not a crackpot theory, like this is, there's a lot of good evidence to think this is true. Actually, it's the most rational feeling to have. So how do you talk yourself or act yourself out of, it's like there's a lion at the cave door and someone saying, let's just do some deep breathing. (laughs) The lion's there. I think I'm going to die. Like this is a reasonable response. So how do we how do we manage that? It is a reasonable response, and I think that the people that sometimes feel the most amount of stress are the people who cannot deny the climate science. They completely accept it. Um, and the only antidote I know of, yes, you need to breathe. Right, you probably need to take a deep deep breath before you take the lion on. You want to see what the lion's doing. You want to find the best way to maybe not kill the lion. I'm not advocating for that, but to tackle it. Um, and so just taking a breath is really important. But for me and for many people that work in the fields that I work in, the best antidote is to take action. So is is to fight, not flight. That's That's what we need to do to, I mean, we can't sit back and, let climate change just happen. Every ton matters. Every tenth of degree matters. What we do right now matters. So I always remember that the future is not set. It might look a bit dark right now, but it's not set. And it is set by the people who take action today. And therefore we need to take action today to create the best world that we can. And that in itself always motivates me every day to stand up and take action despite what I know about the health of the climate. And so the best antidote is to take action. And I think that one thing that people could do 
is after you take the deep breath, <laughs> is to realize that you're actually not alone and that your response to this is absolutely reasonable and should be the human response. We should be worried about this. And it's, to be honest, worrying that not enough people are worried about climate change. Um, but if you can find a way to join with other people who share your concerns, share your idea about what the future should be and could be if we take action, then you'll find out you won't be alone. So join with like-minded people. That could be as simple as talking to your neighbor or a family or a friend, but also could be joining a, a group that you share your values with. So it could be an Australian Conservation Foundation. It could be another environment group or climate group that you share your values with. These days, there are parents for climate action, vets for climate action, engineers for climate action. You will find one where you share your values and you will find out that not only are you not alone, but then when one person joins with another person, joins with 10 people, joins with 100 people, can actually change the future. And the good news, change is already underway and it can happen in an instant. Here's Rebecca again. As you would know, systems change. Having now, you know, being 51 and looked at all the kind of issues that matter to me, I now realise that, that time isn't linear and, it is, and, and the, the pathway of progress is not dictated by the pathway of progress in the past. You can have a situation where you're plugging away and plugging away and nothing happens and suddenly some, a few things happen and you can leap forward in a quite short period of time to a position you could never have imagined that you'd be. The flip side to that, as you've seen in places like America with Roe versus Wade, is suddenly you can be thrown back, you can be thrown back to a past that you never thought, you know, and I mean you just... You just didn't ever think that that kind of world could exist. So it just shows, it shows you two things. It shows you vigilance, never, ever take for granted the progress that you have. It also shows you optimism because suddenly things can move. I mean, think, Susan, about the dramatic political difference between the elections of 2019 and the elections of 2022. I mean, you just couldn't imagine two different political outcomes in an, in an extraordinarily short period of time. It's not like Australians changed dramatically. We, we did have the fires. We did have other things. But So that's what keeps me optimistic, not necessarily because I think, you know, I look at all the evidence and think this is going to be easy, but I think I know and can see now a million, a lot of examples of how suddenly things can leap forward because a group of six or seven people said, nah, we're just going to really try, try to shift the dial and it can work. Here's Callie O'Shaughnessy. What's giving you hope in this area? But I have this little trick to look backwards to dream forward. So when I started probably 15 years ago working in the nonprofit area, uh, I've always worked in the environment my whole career, but in the nonprofit area, 3%, the target for Australia's renewable energy was 3%. It was the target. We weren't even there. And now we're at 33, 35% of actual renewable energy in Australia. The projections to 2030 are for about 82%. We're going to blow that out of the water. We'll get there faster than that. 
And when we were struggling about the 3% target and advocating to government to set that target, everyone was saying it was impossible to do and we wouldn't achieve it um, and put all the barriers up in front of us. But not only um, did we beat the, the targets that were set for 2030, and I think we will beat them for 20, um, so sorry, 2020, I think we'll beat them for 2030. Um, we, we did what people said was impossible. So what they tell me today is impossible. I don't listen to, you know, Nelson Mandela said things only seem impossible until they're done. And I agree with him. Um, and you've, you've got to look every, every, every big advancement that humanity has made has happened because humans have asked for it and got together and got organized about it. And this is the next one. So let's look backwards to where we've come from to dream forwards about where we can get to. Kelly, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. When it comes to climate change, we have choices. We can choose to bury our heads in the sand. We can live in fear of an uncertain future, or we can acknowledge that climate anxiety is a reasonable reaction to the greatest challenge our world has ever known and use it as a catalyst for change. I know which choice will help me sleep better. Thank you to all our guests on this episode, Amanda McKenzie, Callie O'Shaughnessy, Dr. Rhonda Garrard, Professor Alan Reid and Dr. Rebecca Huntley. You can learn more about their work by visiting our show notes. Music featured in today's episode comes from Climate Notes, an installation and performance project by Dr. Anna McMichael and Dr. Louise Devonish, both from Monash University's Sir Zelman Cowan School of Music. Learn more about this incredible interactive work in our show notes and join us next week on What Happens Next for a closer look at how art can help heal our climate anxiety. Hey, listeners, we love your five-star ratings and reviews. Keep them coming. Tell us what you really think about a topic or just let us know the last episode you listened to. Your feedback makes a difference. Why just listen to the podcast? Visit Monash University's YouTube channel to see a video version of what happens next. You can also watch this episode on Monash Lens. Visit lens.monash.edu. Check the link to listen now.